what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I know the man that was locked in the barn with him all them hours that morning. I'm confident he knows more than he let Tom to know. I know in Tony's head, he always thought if, if he could get a get a big trophy deer, his dad would love him. Did he photograph the evidence when he found it? No, no, he didn't photograph it, nothing. I'm then able to create an interview and question him as to we found these casings in your back garden. Can you explain how they got there? To do it all then and there is completely wrong. Hello. And welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. This is part three of my chat with Anthony Duke, the man serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for murder, a crime he has always maintained he's innocent of. Now, if you're yet to listen to the previous two episodes, it's time to hit that pause button, head on back and catch up. So in the previous episode, prior to us discussing Tony's case, we heard about the volatile institution in which Tony finds himself. He's mentioned to me in the past that he's had to hold his own and stand his ground on more than one occasion. So I asked him about that in a recent call. So you mentioned that, you know, the last decade for you has been chaotic. Um, Did you find yourself in confrontation when you first arrived? Yeah, quite a bit because, you know, coming down life without the possibility of parole... You know, it was hard to accept at first. Then the simple fact of, well, you're doing life, so, you, you know, I'm not supposed to be in here. Now I got the rest of my life in here. I just, I didn't really have much care for authority. I wanted to do something, I did it, you know. I mean, I tried to stick to myself and do, do me, but I had no problem, you know, when I got kicked out of the, the crowd or got yelled at for doing something, I had no problem moving. Uh, letting my voice be known or, you know, and then some people, because they think, you know, they're gang-related, that people just cower down because they they feel they got numbers backing them. 
found myself fighting out of a number of situations where it wasn't fair, but I fought my way out of it multiple times and slowly just grew a callus over my heart and I accepted that I was doing life, so I was a part of the problem yeah. rather than the solution. I guess, I don't know, somebody, uh, I don't know, found a way to reach, reach me, let me know that life matters, that I wasn't alone, and I am loved. It didn't, didn't fully, I don't know, get me back on track, but it helped me work on my appeal, remain positive a little bit. Uh, but I found ways to stimulate the process and forget about forget about reality. And then, I don't know, one day I just, I went to church and I was there and I don't know, the message just really stuck with me and, and touched my heart. It was like, God told me that if I didn't get my act together and choose to do his will rather than my own, then he was going to pull away from me and take away his grace and his mercy from me and allow me to do my own will and to see how far I'm going to get doing me on my own without the presence of God around me. Yeah, I mean, look, I think I think for you, obviously, <clears throat> having faith is 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 fantastic because I think it just you know, as you said, it helps you keep focused on, on where you want to be and uh, not getting involved in you know these incidents that take place in, in where you are, which is obviously a, a very dangerous and can be very dangerous via a very violent place. So you've obviously come a long way since you arrived in the prison. Definitely, I got many scars and stories. Back that up. Okay, so let's talk about Tony's alibi. Now, it's the first question any suspect or persons of interest is asked by law enforcement when they're trying to eliminate someone from their inquiries. Where were you at the time of this crime? So where was Tony that night? Well, Tony says that he was with his partner at the time, Ashley, and they were together all night. However, when it came time for Tony's eventual trial, his now ex-partner would tell police that Tony went out around 9pm and arrived back at about 10pm, which just so happens to be about the time detectives would say the murder took place. Here's Tony on that night. No, we didn't even get... We got home about that time. We were at her mom's house for Christmas function where we had to pick her daughter up from her dad's. We went to her mom's Christmas function with her mom, dropped the baby back off with her dad, I believe, and then we went back. I stopped and got gas. We might have even had the baby for the night. I don't remember. I know the baby got picked up the following night to go to her grandparents' house for an actual Christmas with the whole family. But I know we stopped at a gas station and got some gas in a can, and I see my, my aunt's boyfriend there who invited us to a New Year's Eve party. And I bought her one of them, I don't know, there's some little fruity cocktail drink that comes in a sealed little container that you freeze and put on ice or something. We actually went home and I lit a fire and turned the couch around to face the fire and I put two and two together. So, so trying to have a romantic evening in front of the fire. So you were with her the whole evening. So, yeah. 
There is one other person who will back up Tony's story about being at the gas station that night, a fact that police say is not true, or they can't find any evidence for, apart from, of course, this witness, who no one has spoken to. Tony's mother, Jamie, hired herself a private investigator to do some digging of his own. And he sat down with a gentleman who said he saw Tony and his girlfriend that night, and he wrote a sworn affidavit, which reads as follows. I have known Anthony Duke for about 10 years. I called him Tony, and I met him through his cousin. On December 30, 2011, I ran into Tony at a gas station in Fowlerville, Michigan. I was with my girlfriend at the time, Julia, and Tony was with his girlfriend at the time, Ashley. Tony had introduced me to Ashley prior to this encounter at the gas station. Tony, Julia, Ashley and I had a conversation in the parking lot of the gas station. I don't remember the exact time that this happened, but as I recall, it was getting dark outside. I invited Tony and Ashley to come to a party that night in Brighton. I remember seeing Tony at that party later that evening. I was never contacted by Tony Duke's defence attorney or any investigator working for Tony's attorney, and I was never asked about seeing Tony and Ashley at the gas station on December 30, 2011. I was never called to testify at Tony Duke's trial. Had I been called to testify, I would have attested to the information above. Detectives would state they believed the time of death of Ronald Hauser was 9.26pm. So how did they come up with this time? Was it a forensic post-mortem of the body that gave them that time? Nothing quite so scientific. Ron's watch had apparently stopped at 9.26pm. So detectives would suggest that his watch broke as he fell from being shot. Tony's mum, Jamie, says that she has other information about that watch. They really didn't know when Ron got killed and nobody ever brought up in court the fact that Ron couldn't read. He could not read. And, and they based his murder upon a time because the watch stopped. And he had two watches on. And I know because I, I talked to his cousin sitting right in the courtroom and he told me Ron got there for Christmas. He's still trying to figure out how to set the damn thing. And they knew that. As we know, Tony says that he was with his girlfriend all night. So why would his now ex-girlfriend testify against him and say that she in fact can't account for his whereabouts from between 9 and 10pm that night? Well, Tony says that he can't be 100% sure, but he has his suspicions that she might have been trying to get herself out of her own trouble. Alright, so Ashley... Me going away, back to prison, it's probably one of the most devastating things she ever had to go through, especially watching her daughter, who took to me, I don't know, she started calling me dad on her own. Like she would literally run around her own father, screaming daddy, 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 and jump in my arms. And it's hard losing somebody. Everybody knows that. Your whole life's changed. Someone's taken from you before your eyes. There's nothing you can do about it. But I don't know. I know she started hanging out with the wrong crowds of people. I know she got high. and I know she ended up in jail. I know she rolled, got in a car accident or something. And I know that a guy that she was dating was in jail, too, for a whole year. Now, I... 
can only think that they, you know, gave her a way out. Was like they tried to give me. Yeah. Was oh well, look what you did. You got caught with drugs. You did this. Whatever it is you did. Oh, you want out of jail? Well, then cooperate with us and testify against Tony. I'm out of this situation. Everybody that took the stand against me were my friends, my lover, my own family. And, and they were all people that would eat at my dinner table, that would get money if they needed gas money. They would get a car if they needed a car because theirs was getting fixed or they needed some extra work. They would come plow snow or work at a landscape job. They're all family. And when they locked me up, it's kind of like they all turned against me for some reason. I know a couple of them went to the detectives talking about reward money because there was a $10,000 reward money for any information. So they're giving all this BS trying to get some reward money. And I didn't. I don't know what would drive someone to, you know, I mean, jail's a scary place. You're threatened to lose your kid. You're facing charges. I don't know what, you know, it's, don't get me wrong. I've thought about it plenty of nights to where I know I wouldn't be here right now if I would have just did what they wanted me to do, but I couldn't live with myself every day knowing that, Oh, I helped them put my father in prison, but I have no idea whether he was involved or not. So eventually, Tony was officially brought in for questioning. And it would appear that according to Tony, detectives did not suspect him for this crime, but in fact, his father. They told me they thought my dad set me up. They thought your dad set you up? Yeah, yeah, it was March 30th. 2012 when they first got me they kept inclining to it that I was covering for somebody and I took another polygraph test at the Ann Arbor Police Department which I was there from like 2 in the afternoon until 11 o'clock at night hooked up to this polygraph machine being questioned and arguing with these detectives and the, the one detective we actually almost got in a physical altercation because he kept telling me I was going down for this that I, I'm involved, and if I'm not, he don't care. He's putting it off on me that I got the record for it. It doesn't matter what he says goes. There's no there's no audio for this interview. There's, there's video of the interrogation, but there's no audio. The polygraph came back as inconclusive. So in their sight, that's a failure. However, when I'm hooked up to a machine and you keep, you're basically having a verbal war with me before and after the actual polygraph interrogation, of course there's going to be a spike in readings. Now, I just want to jump in here quickly. We will discuss further the situation regarding these polygraph tests as they would become a feature later on in the case. But back to Tony's father and the police. I didn't even know that they had my dad in custody that night. They had him in custody. And so did they take him into custody later because on of the, the, the Sabbaths that they said that they found at his place? I don't know. I'm not sure. They didn't. I didn't know any of it. I didn't even know they had him in custody until my trial. I wasn't even aware that they had arrested him. 
until my trial began. So they've arrested him in uh, relation to this this murder as well. As did they arrest him as like a, an accessory? Like does he need help? Oh, or? they no, they arrested him for it. They arrested him for it, and they thought that they was. I guess they was trying to get they were trying to get me to admit to something. The night before that, my dad came to me asking about my guns and the gun that I had when I was hunting that he wanted them so that he could hand them over to the police and clear me of any wrongdoing. Yeah. I said, I've already taken a polygraph test. I've, I'm clear. What do you mean? I didn't do nothing. He's like, well, they know that you had guns. I said, well, how would they know that they had guns? And then he tried to say, Rachel and Nick told them, which Rachel and Nick was a friend of you. Well, I was or some friends of mine yeah. at this time, and not really at this time, but before. And I would bow hunt with Nick. I never hunted with a gun around Nick. We, we didn't hang out at this time. So I knew he was lying to me. Later on, the detectives told me that he put a piece of paper in front of me and said, sign this, tell me. Do what we want you to do. Testify against your dad. I'll let you go right now. I said, testify against my dad for what? He said, murdering Ron and setting you up to take the fall. You're a perfect fall guy. You're a felon. You're on parole. You've been to prison. You have a history of not wanting to work with us, meaning their sheriff's department, because they're receiving and concealing stolen property. Case they charged me with because I wouldn't tell them who I got a stolen snowmobile from. There was several people that was in their office telling them who it was and they needed it to come from me and I wouldn't do it. They begged and pleaded with me and said, you really want to get charged with something someone else did? You da 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 da. So they charged me with that. So I guess in their eyes I'm uncooperative. But he blatantly told me, testify, help them. And I could go, and I would I couldn't find it in my heart to believe that my dad would set me up. Obviously, I need to state that no wrongdoing was ever found against Tony's father, as far as I know. Tony was the only one who was charged, tried, and convicted of his crime. Obviously, this is Tony's account of things. So when he says that his father was the detective's first suspect, this of course blew my mind. And... I wanted to try and get this verified from the source. The source that is the Livingston County Sheriff's Office. Good afternoon, Livingston County Sheriff's Office. How may I help you? Yeah, hi. Um, My name's Jack Lawrence. I'm a journalist from Australia. I'm doing a story um, in regards to um, an inmate who's incarcerated now. I think uh, the investigation was done by your office. Um, I was hoping to speak with uh, Michael Murphy. I have to transfer you to his assistant. Hold on. Thank Thank you. you very much. You've reached with the Livingston County Sheriff's Office. Please leave a message. I will return your call as soon as possible. Thank you. Yes, hi, my name's Jack Lawrence. Now, at the time of Tony's arrest and trial, Mr. Michael Murphy was under sheriff of Livingston County and said in a comment to reporters that Tony was simply grasping at straws, especially when he was trying to place blame on some of the detectives and that any of these claims that he made were completely baseless. So far, I've been unable to sit down with Mr Murphy for a response, but I will continue to try and contact him so that we can get some answers on some of the things Tony has been telling me. Seven zero. Thank you. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, there's a few odd things surrounding the finding of Ron's body 
that we need to discuss. Because, I mean, a, a dead man's not going to get in trouble with the police for having marijuana. No. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Well, firstly, I've realized that I have failed you miserably. I have not wished you all a very happy new year. So firstly, happy new year. I do hope that 2023 is a brilliant one for you and your family. It's going to be an exciting year for one minute remaining as we look to not only bring you more fascinating cases, but also we build our OMR community. You can jump into our closed Facebook group right now to hear all about what we have planned for 2023. Just search One Minute Remaining Podcast right now in Facebook and I'll see you in there. Did they say Did they say why they thought that your father had done it? They just said that he's got a family business that my sister and my little brother and even my stepmom, they all work. I don't work for them or with them. Why would I be doing my own thing? If there wasn't a division amongst the family, that they heard my sister wishing that I was back in prison. They know of my stepmom not claiming me as a stepson or a part of the family. And they said that all they can see is that I'm a threat to their business. And I'm out on parole. I'm doing good. I got my own stuff. I don't need them. And that whatever, whatever they did or whatever happened, I would be an easy fall guy. Um, so they're suggesting they're suggesting that your father killed this guy to set you up to get you back in prison. Yeah. Wow. And I told him to shove it up their ass. I said I would never testify against my dad, even if I knew that to be true, which I, I don't believe that to be true. I mean, we've been through a lot. Sure. We don't talk. and We have disagreements and have had our own our own spouse, but I 
personally couldn't see that would set me up or allow somebody to set me up. I can't, I can't fathom why he would do that. Did your father have a criminal history? I don't know. When he was a teenager, he did something, but but he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't like some sort of career criminal or anything. No. Seems a bit drastic that he would Nobody. kill someone just to set you up. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to believe it. Uh, I don't. Now, if somebody that he knows or something around, maybe, I have no idea. I know the man that was locked in the barn with him all them hours that morning. I'm confident he knows more than he let time to know. So we need to discuss more about Tony's stepfather and this man that has been reportedly locked in a barn with him. I spoke with Tony's mum regarding her ex, who she believes lied on the stand at Tony's trial. He said he'd never been in Ron's house, and that's a lie. He'd mowed his lawn for 10 years, raced it at Ron's racetrack. He used to crash derby cars at his racetrack every Saturday. I know. I've been over there. I know who's been in his house. And uh, he lied about that. He lied about a lot of things. But I've known him since he was 14 years old, and every time that he would commit a crime, he would be buddy-buddy and buddy with the police and, and always you know, pin it on someone else. Tony t- told me that his dad and another bloke were in locked in a barn or something um, for some time. The very next day after the murder, Tony went over to his dad's house. And uh, Bob Gladstone, who, by the way, was living down the street from Ron, uh, the guy who got murdered. Uh, yeah, Jimmy and Bob Gladstone were locked in the barn for over an hour and a half and nobody could get in the morning after the murder. Was that the guy that found yep. Ron? Or oh, there was the one that went initially went round yes, to Ron's yes, house. Yes, it's the one that found Ron. Now again, I must be clear here. Obviously, Tony was the only one charged, tried, and found guilty of this crime. No wrongdoing at this stage has ever been found against anyone else for this murder. But let's focus on this situation regarding the barn, Tony's father, and a man by the name of Bob Gladstone. Bob was in fact one of the men that would eventually find Ron dead at his home, which is another bizarre situation itself, which we'll discuss in a moment. But here's Tony talking about his father and Bob. Well, they were locked in the barn for quite some time, and it was really stressed about how uh, they, the detectives found a bag of marijuana mm. in the weeds outside of Ron's house with blood on it and that it was believed that my father gave him that back of weed. And the way they robbed Robert Gladstone testified at the preliminary exam, he just, it, it seemed like he put too much into it, too much thought and preparation. Because for, for him to have been a friend of Ron's for 20-some years, the way he spoke in the preliminary, when he 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 said he said Ron was anal about his yard and everything, hmm. and somebody else testified in the same manner. They said the same thing, which I think it was my dad. And then at trial, it was different, but Robert Gladstone was the one, first one supposedly to have went to Ron's house with instructions from his girlfriend to go see if he was all right because he hadn't showed up to a New Year's Eve party. Yeah. And for someone who has 
known somebody for so many years and has is one of only a few people that are allowed to go in Ron's house. He said that he'd come around the basement, seen a broken window, stopped in his tracks, was scared, backtracked out of there, and then proceeded to call Ron's cell phone and house phone and leave a message stating, hey buddy, your window's broke. I know you're a private person, la da 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 you don't want the police involved, and I can't call the police. But uh, people are worried about you, you need to call and let us know what's going on. Then he goes back to the party, gets Ron's brother, comes back to Ron's house, and then walks 10 feet farther and, and sees in the window that Ron's dead, laying on the floor in a lake of blood I don't know about you but if you're friends with somebody for so many years and, and you're a trusted individual that is allowed in this man's house which Ron didn't let very many people in the, in his house ever you mean to tell me that this is someone you, you speak highly of and you're friends with and you see a busted window and got an eerie feeling you're not going to investigate or go holler in there for him, especially when no one's heard from him for a couple of days and you're sent there to get a visual on him to see if he, because he, you come around, it's dark. He says, it's dark. He sees a broken window and he leaves. But he was sent there to see what was going on with him. Yeah. All right, and comes back with his brother and walks a little farther than where he stopped and finds Ron deceased in the basement. So I don't I, I don't believe that he didn't know that Ron wasn't dead laying there on the floor. After that, it seemed like he prospered very well from a stay-at-home dad to doing work on his own, which I don't want I mean I don't I know what it's like to have a finger pointed at me. Yeah. So I'm not going to blatantly point a finger at somebody. No, but you got to question but these I know, things. Right. These are certain concerns that rise up for questioning for me concerning everything. And then in this, the same time I was in the county jail fighting this, he was in the county jail for whatever he did to get arrested. His brother is also a career criminal who has impersonated federal agents, had illegal guns with fire, filed down firing pins, and they got a history that far exceeds anything I've ever done. So what Tony's saying is indeed fact. After Ron had not been heard from and was not returning any messages or calls, Bob Gladstone goes around to his place to check on him. Bob says that when he gets there, he sees that the basement window is busted and he gets an eerie feeling. He decides not to go and investigate any further but leaves the house, tries to call Ron and leaves him a message. He then gets Ron's brother and they return back to Ron's home where they walk up to the window and see Ron dead on the floor. So let's put ourselves in this scenario. You get a call about a good friend who's not returning messages or calls and people are worried about him. You live nearby, so you go around to check on them. When you get to the house, you see a broken window. What would you do? Would you walk up to that broken window, have a look in and see if you can see anything? Would you maybe call out and see if anyone responded to you? Or leave the property without investigating any further, try and call the person after you've been told they're not returning calls or messages, and then go and get somebody else 
and return to the property and investigate further. To me, it does sound odd. And it definitely won't be the last odd part about the story from the man who finds Ron. I asked Tony if he could give me a bit more info on the man that found Ron that day, and it seems he also has a bit of a checkered past. He's a criminal. Uh, that's all I've ever known of him. So what have he, what have he been done for? Mm, in other than that, well, he lives in the shadows of his brother, but he's done everything with his brother. His brother's just been caught and taking the rap for more than him, but they did a lot of running cons and drugs and stuff like that around the county and the state, impersonating police, running up in houses like the, like they're the SWAT team, robbing drug dealers, arms dealers. Was he a suspect at any stage? Did they look into him? Uh, <laughs> he, was, I think he was the first one they put on the stand, so I, I have no idea. Yeah, right. He... Uh, he gave his story of how he was there and backed up out of there because he was scared about a broken window. They went and got his brother, and then they came back and walked like five to ten more feet and seen he was lying in the basement covered in blood. So from everything I've learned about the victim, Mr. Hauser, it would appear that he would often surround himself with people who had a past, In fact, this is something I spoke to journalist Lisa Roos Church about, the lady who wrote about the case during the trial. He says that he was good mates with this guy that was killed and they would hang out a lot. In fact, he did work for for this guy. Um, But he also says that this man worked with a lot of people that had, should we say, hmm, I don't want to say shady backgrounds, but, you know, they they all seem to have a past. That is accurate from what I understand from the people who knew him. He was known as someone who would give those with Troubles, a second chance. Yeah. And I believe Mr. Duke was one of those people. So as I mentioned, there was something else that was odd about the way in which Mr. Gladstone handled the finding of Ron Hauser. When the police attended the scene of the murder, detectives would find a bag of marijuana in the bushes outside of Ron's house. Mr. Gladstone would tell police that they in fact got that from the room in which Ron had been shot and decided to toss it into the bushes, as they did not want Ron to, one, get in trouble for having it, and two, they apparently didn't want people to think Ron was killed over a drug deal gone wrong. Tony and I spoke about this. Didn't want him to get in trouble and for people to think that he was killed over a drug deal gone bad. But why wouldn't they want people to think that? I don't know, but I can speculate that they know more than what what they let on to be. Because, I mean, a, a dead man's not going to get in trouble with the police for having marijuana. No. So to throw the weed away because you're worried about him getting in trouble is a very odd thing to do. Very. And then to say that you didn't want him, didn't want people, very. didn't want people to think that he got killed over a drug deal, it's like, well, but why not? I mean, it's, this is a murder scene. We need to find out why this man was killed. Right. He was killed. Regardless of what it was already exactly. killed. But for you to just jump for someone to just automatically jump to, I don't want him to, I don't want people to think that someone he was killed over a drug deal. Why would you come up with that? But to me, for them, for them to say something like that means that they know that he was involved in something else. Why else would you say something like that, especially over a bag of weed? Because essentially, that's tampering with evidence. That's tampering with a crime scene. You know, they, they shouldn't have touched anything. Exactly. It was a tamp. The crime scene was 
tampered with from the very beginning. So for them to just pick and choose what they want to make as evidence and what not to use as evidence from an already contaminated crime scene is just bizarre. You have one minute remaining. Ah, the woman who's quickly becoming the most hated voice in podcasting. Poor lady, just doing her job. And that job is to wrap me up. Still to come, though, we need to talk about the apparent murder weapon, a weapon that was never recovered. It is a gun detectives would suggest Tony stole. But like with everything to do with this case, there seems like there's more to it than that. The only reason she reported it stolen was because they directed her to report it stolen. Do you think the reason she said she couldn't, she couldn't find it was because she did those alterations that would be a, a felony charge? Most definitely. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. 